I've been resistant to education for a really long time around leverage. And I think a lot of it comes from this expectation from probably college that I would be a father and a husband and provide for my family. And the safest way to do that was my path forward. And having a corporate job, like once I landed that corporate job, I think in my mind, I was set. I don't need to change anything. I don't need to learn about financial leverage. I don't need to do labor, learn about labor leverage or, or anything like that because I just kind of found my career. And it, I, was, I, was being a night, I was being a good little cog in the machine that was the corporate world. And once I left, that's when my eyes have been opened to these different types of leverage, which is why I'm fascinated by this, this conversation. Welcome to Lessons in Leverage, the podcast that takes you behind the scenes of success. We'll help you unlock the secrets of leverage so you can amplify your impact in the world. Here's your host, Spencer Lowe. Thank you for being on the podcast. So today we have Micah Lawrence on the podcast. Micah went from being a high-performing employee at companies like USAA and Apple to the founder of Tailored Consulting, which is a company that specializes in leadership and team development. They use the Clifton Strengths Strengths Finder Assessment as a foundational tool in their work to help leaders improve productivity, communication, retention, job satisfaction, and engagement on their teams. Uh, this year, Micah also launched Culture Lab, which is a hiring fit interview tool that helps both candidates and companies determine whether a candidate is likely to thrive in the working environment that they're applying to. He's an outstanding husband and father, musician, and someone that I'm grateful to consider a good friend. Micah, thanks for coming on the podcast. Oh, man, it's my pleasure, Spencer. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, it's uh, just like I was saying a couple minutes ago that like I just love having these conversations and... Uh, so it gets me super excited uh, every time, yeah. even though I already know you. I'm excited for the honest to hear a little bit about your story. And I'm hoping I get to learn some new things along the way. So tell me, earlier this year, you published your 40 by 40 list, which was a long list of things you wanted to achieve before turning 40. What has been your favorite item to check off that list so far? And are you on pace to get them all done? Oh, my goodness. I didn't even know you were going to ask me about this. Okay. It's actually, <laughs> it's a pretty easy, it's a pretty, pretty easy answer for both. I'll do your second question first. I'm not on track to finish all of them, but I, I think I'm going to be right around 35. I have about a month left to knock some things out and I'm on track to get about 35 out of 40, which I feel really good about. How long did you have when you first made the list? Uh, okay. So I, I actually decided to do this right around my 39th birthday. That's when I had the idea and, and okay. I started a little bit late. So it probably took me a month just to figure out my list. And I started adding things kind of that first month after my 39th birthday. So I've, I probably had 11 months total to do these things. And I put some low hanging fruit on there. there. There were definitely some softballs that I could knock out any day that I chose to. So I, I built in some ambitious stuff and some softballs so that I could have some, some rewards and check things off along the way. I love that. Yeah. The, uh, that's almost one a week. So that's a pretty aggressive pace for a guy who's also building point. two companies and uh, has other things going on. That, I was thinking about that when I was looking at the list. I'm like, man, every week you got to check something off to be on pace here. Yeah, I didn't even think about that. That's actually really validating. <laughs> it's, my, it's always my natural thing. Well, how much, what do I have to do yeah. per week to get there? That's where I go with it. Oh, and sorry, to answer your other question, um, my favorite one was that I had put I had put three things on my list that I expected to cross off separately 
And it was, I wanted to do, I wanted to visit either South America or Hawaii. I assumed it would be for vacation. Uh, then I also put that I wanted to facilitate some kind of uh, team workshop in another country. And I didn't care what country that was, but somewhere outside of the United States. And then a third thing I put on my list was to uh, take my wife with me on one of my business trips. And I ended up getting invited to do a workshop for the American Red Cross in Panama. And I ended up checking off all three of those lists, or sorry, all three of those things off of my list in that one trip to Panama. Took my wife with me, got to do a workshop in Spanish, which was super cool. I'd never done that before. And I got to visit South Central America. I'm fudging on that one a little bit. Central South America, that's all, it all counts. It's south of the United States. <laughs> okay, that's fair. I, I'm not going to argue the the details on that. That's awesome <laughs> that you got to get all three at the same time. So when you were still at USAA, that's the last place you were before you decided to become an entrepreneur. And this podcast, I really want to look at leverage through a lot of different lenses. And you were obviously very successful at USAA. You spent 10 years there, worked your way up to become a director. And when you think about that journey, I don't think of anyone that I know who has really thrived in a company without learning to use leverage in some way, shape, or form. Is there any learnings that come to mind when you think about that that evolution of first starting out there to the heights that you reached there where you can identify using leverage to advance your career for the people out there who might not yet be entrepreneurs, may never be entrepreneurs, but want to use leverage in their life? Yeah. Man, this this isn't going to surprise you at all, but one of the things that um, because I use the Clifton Strengths Assessment so much in my work, that started in my corporate job, and I didn't realize that I was living out this idea of strengths based development in my corporate job before I became an entrepreneur. But it's very much what I would consider talent leverage, and it can be an individual thing, and it can be something that you use in yourself or that you leverage in yourself, and something that leaders do with other people and their talents. But the idea behind what I would consider talent leverage is that when people are doing work that aligns with their strengths, what might be hard for somebody else comes easily to them. So just like you've described, the inputs are minimal for extraordinary outcomes. And I use this example in our workshops often, but I think most people, unless you were this kid, most people remember that kid, I know I do, in elementary school, where there was this super smart kid that just knew math. He just could figure out anything with math. He could do it all in his head. Bugged the crap out of me because I had to work so freaking hard to be good at math and to get good grades, and he didn't have to work hard at all. So he was using his own talent. He was leveraging his own talent to do something that came naturally to him. And I feel like I got to experiment with that a little bit in my corporate job where I started working in project management and it was pretty fun. I liked it. It was good work. Uh, I was good at it, but I didn't realize until I left project management how hard it was for me because I'm not really an organized person. I'm kind of an off the cuff and I like to be adaptable and let things take things as they come and uh, go with the flow. And I was required to be very structured and organized in that job. And it wasn't until I was asked to do uh, facilitation. They invited me to apply for a role to do strategic planning facilitation for the CIO. And I was like, that sounds really fun. Let's try that. And once I started doing facilitation work and engaging with groups, I was like, I'm never going to be a project manager again. I knew it within a month of starting to do facilitation because it was so easy. And it was that was almost like amplified 
when I would talk to other people who would say, I could never do what you do. That would drain the life out of me to be in front of SVPs and high level executives facilitating a room, basically public speaking on a weekly basis would drain the life out of me. I could never do that. And, and I would take that home and think I could do this every day for the rest of my life. This is so natural for me that changed the way that I started to see putting myself into a position to be successful. I looked for more roles that leveraged the things that came naturally to me rather than telling myself, and I, I hear this a lot from just intelligent people, just because you can do something doesn't mean you should. And so to answer your question, I feel like I learned pretty early on in my career that leveraging my talents by putting myself in a position to do work that comes naturally to me accelerated my ability to grow and to be successful in whatever role I chose to go to next. It's such an interesting and, and important perspective on leverage about how your talents are a source of leverage. And it's one of the things I really get excited about with this podcast is diving into all these ways that people don't normally realize or think about these sources of leverage that we have all around us. And as you were describing that, it made me think of something, some advice that I actually hate that I think people give a lot. There's a lot of people that give this advice and they say, do what you love and you'll never work a day in your life. <laughs> and I'm like, no, I personally hate that advice. I, I've done things I've hated a large portion of my life and it's helped me be very successful. But not doing something I love is not the same as doing things I am not good at, doing things where I will not be able to succeed because I will have to work 10 times as hard on my inputs just to get to an acceptable or minimum level output. And that in your example, I think is a bit of the magic there where when you understand your strengths and you align your job, your career, your pursuits to that, you may not be in love and passionate about every piece and it may not be your favorite thing, but you will get outsized results and you'll do it with less inputs. And that is how you get ahead. Like in a market-based economy, being able to do something that is easy for you, but hard for other people because it aligns to your strengths, such a massive source of leverage to get much bigger results. And it makes sense that that would totally accelerate your career and be a really strong foundation for then eventually becoming an entrepreneur. So tell me about what then, what that point was where you realized, okay, I'm high leverage. I'm aligned with my strengths now. I see my future. And instead of being an employee, I think it's time to go out and be able to, to get more leverage by owning the business and, and, and applying more leverage to these strengths. What was that transition like for you? What was scary about it? What went well? Yeah. Talk me through how that went for you. Oh man. Okay. So I, I don't remember at what point this happened, but about a year, maybe a year and a half before I ended up quitting my corporate job, I had a conversation with my wife when I came home from work and she made this observation that I was always talking about, even though at that point I was a director, I led a team of business architects. We did strategic planning type work for uh, senior leaders in the financial services company I worked for. And I, when I came home from work, I never talked about my day job. I never talked about what I was doing as a director in strategic planning and business architecture. I was talking about workshops I facilitated, strengths conversations I was having, coaching conversations I was having with people uh, about their strengths and how to leverage them to be successful. People would call me sometimes and be like, hey, you don't know me, but I heard you do these workshops using the Clifton Strengths Assessment. Could, could you come do that with my team? And I'm like, you bet. I'm, I will make time to come do that outside of my day job. That's not what I was paid to do. And when my wife made that observation, like you talk more about th that stuff than you do about your day job. 
that's when something clicked for me where I was like, okay, I need to start thinking about a change because more and more as I advanced in my corporate role, I felt like I was being told how to do my job rather than getting to decide how to do my job. And that was something that I was ready to move on from. And entrepreneurship was the best way to do that, just to be my own boss. So I kind of had a little bit of a runway about six months where I knew I was going to quit in six months. And my wife and I started saving, putting money aside. I started getting more training that would help me get more business coming out of my my corporate job once I quit. And then finally, I just picked a date, pulled the trigger, and uh, it was scary. It was It's hard to let go of all of that stability that comes with a cushy corporate job and just sit down at your desk the first day you work for yourself and look around like, okay, now what? Who, who, who's going to hire me? How do I find those people? And let's get started. Yeah, that's that's a, a big jump uh, and one I can empathize with well. It's uh, I often say that that's the big difference between being an employee and an owner of a company is that you are willing to accept the risk and responsibility of the customer relationship, finding, identifying, and selling to those customers. And if you own that part of it, then you get the upside of that relationship. If you don't want that, you just want to do the thing you like doing and not have any risk of having to find those people. And it's not that there's no risk. Obviously, you could still be laid off or other things. But if you want to have at least a per, what what is often perceived as a lower risk because yeah. you are separated from it, then you go be an employee somewhere. And there's nothing wrong with either approach, but um, certainly the leverage is higher in that ownership relationship where now when things go well, you get a much larger share of the results. And, and the things you do well can result in much bigger results for you personally. Whereas when you're an employee, some of the things you do well will have a bigger impact for the team, but only some of that will translate to you directly because you don't have any of the risk of the larger downsides. Uh, yeah. And so you have, you, you're sheltered from some of that. So yeah, I, I love hearing that. And I, I definitely identify with that uh, piece of, uh, of your, of your journey. So as you think about some tactical examples, some, some ways that uh, you're using leverage now and have used leverage to build your business. You know, some of the big categories we often think about, I think about labor leverage is one of the first ones that most new entrepreneurs are going to leverage either labor or technology to start to see those outsized re returns. And then that opens up opportunities in terms of having more money and access to capital, uh, having more respect from investors, things like that, that, that open a lot of financial leverage opportunities. And so there's a lot of different categories. But when I think about your business, I actually was just reading on LinkedIn this morning, you were talking about a really cool example of how you have used other coaches that work with you and how that has allowed you to de deliver really unique value offerings to your clients. And I'm sure also allows you to have more free time, thus work on the business more. Tell me about how you're using that labor leverage to, to scale. Yeah, no, I, I am happy to talk about this. And I'm actually thinking while you were talking, I'm thinking about what I know about your business. And I'm curious because I'm a, I've been a party of one in my business most of up until I'm about three years in. And it's just been me. I'm a solopreneur in every sense of the word uh, up until now. And you jumped in like feet first with labor leverage. So I'm curious what your side of this would be because you came in with a team and that would be scary for me. And I think that part of what I admire about you and what I'm learning about myself is that I've been resistant to education for a really long time around leverage. And I think a lot of it comes from this expectation from 
probably college, that I would be a father and a husband and provide for my family. And the safest way to do that was my path forward. And having a mm -hmm. corporate job, like once I landed that corporate job, I think in my mind, I was set. I don't need to change anything. I don't need to learn about financial leverage. I don't need to do labor, learn about labor leverage or, or anything like that, because I just kind of found my career. And it, I was, I was being a night, I was being a good little cog in the machine that was the corporate world. And once I left, that's when my eyes have been open to these different types of leverage, which is why I'm fascinated by this, this conversation. But when it comes to labor leverage for me, I assumed at the beginning when I started my business that I would always be a solopreneur. And I actually named my company, Micah Lawrence Coaching. Like that's what I called it. And it clicked for me about 18 months in that I created my own bottleneck to growth or that I was the bottleneck to scaling my business or growing my business. Because if it's Micah Lawrence Coaching, every client I can get expects to do coaching with Micah Lawrence. And so now my capacity to grow is limited to my ability to provide the coaching myself, my capacity to do the coaching. So I rebranded at the beginning of 2023 to tailored consulting and started up pursuing this model that you were talking about that I posted on LinkedIn, where I now subcontract or I hire coaches that are excellent at what they do. They've been doing it for years. They have the certifications that are important to me. And now when I have a new client come to me, I don't do the coaching anymore. I set them up. Well, rarely, sometimes I still do, but I set those new clients up with two different coaches to have a discovery call with. I select coaches that I think have the right experience for this client, but then they do a short discovery call with each of these two coaches. And then they decide who do I want to work with? And it adds value to my customers because they feel like, well, I don't have to go searching everywhere for multiple coaches and then do all of that homework and then figure out how to schedule with each of them and decide which one to work with. I put those all in one place. You just come to tailored consulting and you can get an interview with multiple coaches and then you just choose who you want to work with. And then I take care of the rest. I'll set up the communication, the contracting, all of that stuff so that the coaches who just love coaching can only worry about coaching. I'll take care of the rest, but also clients who don't want to have to go through all the hassle of finding a good coach can come to me and I'll take care of the rest. It's kind of this cool, almost like marketplace that I've created where people can get excellent coaching at a fraction in a fraction of the time that it would take and effort it would take to find their own coach where this, where labor, labor leverage comes in is I'm not a bottleneck anymore. I still value coaching. Mm -hmm. And sometimes I'll even inject myself into the process and I'll be one of the two coaches that a new client will meet with, because I feel like I need to stay up on my skills and I need to earn their business. I need to earn their trust and show that I still know how to do this too. But now my ability to scale or my capacity is basically unlimited because any client that comes to me, I never have to say no. I can set them up with two coaches, send them through the process. And even though I'm getting a fraction of the revenue because I can scale indefinitely, well, indefinitely, I'm leveraging labor. And that's a way that I can continue to make a little bit from the coaches that I send business to and they're being provided for, which I know this is important to you, but it feels really great to provide income and, and revenue to these other coaches that are trying to grow their practices and make this work for them. But uh, being able to take myself away as a bottleneck 
and know that I can scale as big as there's demand was a really eye-opening moment when I first had this idea early in 2023 that I've been putting in place since then. And the potential I see for it is just, is not limitless, but way beyond what I could have accomplished as a solopreneur. Yeah. I mean, I think I went through a similar kind of experience, you know, in terms of answering your question back to me, I think um, what I, the first 10 months I worked by myself and then I, I was thinking, all right, I'm making great money as a solopreneur. Why would I want the hassle of having to manage people? Why would I want to deal with uh, people that are going to quit or, or have to fire someone? Or, you know, what if they make a mistake on a client and I have to fix it? And there's all these headaches that are going to come with building out a team. And in my previous job that I left before I started my consulting practice, I was managing a pretty large team. And I know some of the things that that entails in terms of if I want to establish yeah. a certain standard for quality and how much I have to do to make sure that quality is there, the training and all of these things. Plus I didn't know how to hire employees and how do I pay taxes and how do I set up <laughs> payroll and what do I even need to do? The whole thing seemed like a headache and was overwhelming. But what I finally settled on was based on some advice actually I got from a really smart entrepreneur named Yogesh out of uh, Southern California. I worked with him oh, on a project and he runs a Microsoft dynamics consulting business. And he told me, he said, look, that's all good and fine and you'll make plenty of money. But every time you go on vacation, no one can cover for you. And if you want to go on vacation, it's just lost dollars. Anytime that you want to have peaks and valleys in your work, because sometimes it can be feast and famine. When you peak, you won't be able to capitalize it. But when there's famine, you will feel it. So yeah. you, you don't have the flexibility to try to capture more of the feast to offset the famine because you don't have any elasticity in your, in your throughput. And he made several other points, but he, he, he got me to really think about it and consider it. And then I had a really unique opportunity to hire one of my closest friends who I'd been in college with and who I trusted a ton. And there was, you know, because of the way things came together, I thought, all right, I'm going to do this. And what I came to believe in around labor leverage is something called the growth imperative, which is something we talk about at my company all the time, which is this idea that if you don't ever have to grow, like if, if nothing ever has to change, then sure, you don't need to grow. But that's not real life. Real life yeah. is in order for me to take on new challenges or, or new opportunities, I have to be able to replace myself, which means company has to grow. And if then that person was going to want to raise, well, now we have to grow again because we need to be able to make sure they have opportunities to move up and take on new challenges. Yeah. And that is an infinite loop of if I care about my people and I want to give them opportunities, even for myself and all the way down through my company, if I want to be able to give vacation time and not be stressed about whether or not, you know, that's going to be a direct cost of the company. And now everyone gets impacted, all those types of things. The more I use labor leverage, the more I can outgrow that. And it becomes a growth imperative where then from there forward, you have to grow or else there will be offsetting consequences. So there is, I think, a really critical decision. There's some people who choose to say solopreneur. I've heard decent arguments for it, but I don't fundamentally at the end of the day agree with them. I think that it's better to eventually transition. Even if you're going to keep it simple, you can scale in terms of labor leverage with subcontractors, with offshore resources, with VAs. There's a lot of ways you can scale and have at least a small team supporting you that will be far superior to working in true isolation. And yeah. uh, so it's really cool to see how in your story, you are now using that 
not only to now benefit yourself by, by having some, some work where you're not the primary person coaching, but you're able to make some money, but it really drives a lot of value for the customer. And this is the concept of leverage that you get bigger results across the board. It's not a one-way thing. You know, customers get more choice now in the process. They get to choose a coach. And like, there's a lot of people who they say, oh, interview with a few different coaches before you choose to make sure it's the right fit. Well, now you've yeah. taken that out of the process. You said, look, I'll do that for you. I'll set it up for you. And I just think that that's a, such an amazing example of how leverage gets better results for everyone. When what's ironic about it too, it was scary because I feel like my ability to maximize my revenue as a solopreneur is that mm -hmm. I do all the work. And that's, so I felt like in 2022, I had an amazing year. I had a really great year and I, I was happy with my revenue. I was like, if I could increase this even just by 10% every year going forward, I'd be in good shape. So there was really, there was no, I didn't need to change anything. And so what stings is when I decided to go with this, just lever leveraging labor differently and recruiting other people to help scale my business, I took a pay cut. I'm now giving a bunch of my revenue to other people. And when you could just keep it all to yourself, I'm sure you experienced this going from your 10 months alone to now involving other people, you take a huge pay cut when a lot of that revenue is bye-bye to other people. And you yep. kind of have to trust that this dip that I'm feeling now, where I was making this much, and now I'm making this much, that that's not just going to recover, but it's going to exponentially exceed where I was going on my own. And that's, that's the scary part. That's why it's a leap of faith to take something like this and, and implement labor leverage. It is not a you implement it. And on day one, you start seeing the benefits. You kind of have to sit back and, and wait. But what was beautiful about it is like you said, and like your mentor said, or the friend that you re referenced, you get time back. And that has been one of the most valuable things that I didn't realize I needed to take my business from being at the 10,000 foot view where I'm doing everything to being at the 30,000 foot view where I can see the forest and I can make decisions that are like, Ooh, what if I partnered with this person? Or what if I tried this new product that I didn't have time for when I was doing all of the work myself? All of a sudden, my ability to scale and grow because I'm thinking like a CEO, not like an employee, changes the trajectory of how your business can grow and, and succeed too. But it's that dip when you implement labor leverage. That was scary for me. It's scary and it's a perpetual cost and there's, there's a lot of scary aspects to leverage. Uh, so it's an important call out because it's not always just like, oh yeah, you just use leverage and it's great. You know, it's, yeah. you gotta be careful. It's a, it's a force multiplier. So it's like, it can multiply good and it can multiply bad. I mean, ask anybody who went and saw the crypto rush and decided to get on Robinhood <laughs> and a crap ton of their money in with margin and then lose just way too much money on that. You know, a few people made money and, and yeah. might've convinced some of their friends to all oh, use margin. Well, it did amplify your result. And in some cases it amplified it in a way that really ended up hurting you. And yeah. so you get, very much have to be careful uh, about how you use leverage because it does, it's, it, it ha it's a powerful tool. Yeah, timing is everything. Certainly, yeah, yeah. And so when you think about then, uh, that's sort of the labor side. Has there been any examples of leverage in your personal life? Ways that you have seen the, the principles of leverage play out in your personal life? I mean, I can think of... I can think of ways that I'm kind of, I'm thinking back on talent leverage where we talked about the Clifton Strengths assessment and how that can sometimes be uh, a way to look at doing the activities that come naturally to you 
so that you have kind of exponential outputs versus when you do work that doesn't align with your strengths, it's harder. You have to work harder for it and it's not as fulfilling. I've actually noticed that in my relationship with my wife, just like any couple, we had a lot of misunderstandings because we're very different people. And when we finally used the Clifton Strengths Assessment and had both of us take it and had conversations about, well, what do these even mean? The language that this assessment provided was so valuable because it gave us words to use to explain our differences. And we noticed that the things that were at the top of my list from the strengths assessment results were literally at the bottom of her list and vice versa. So I think that's something that became an understanding for us over time that when you know yourself well and you know those things that leverage your talents versus the things that don't, and you start to treat other people as partners, it's really liberating to stop looking to yourself to be all things to all people or to think that you need to know the answer to every question or be good at everything. I feel like I struggled with that as an adult for most of like probably all of my 20s. I thought I, I needed to hide when I didn't know the answer or when I wasn't good at something. And once I started using the Clifton Strengths Assessment in my personal and professional life, that really was freeing to the extent that I became okay with saying, man, I'm not good at this, but you are, can you help me? And that created leverage, not just in my professional world, but in my personal life too, with my wife. Now she knows what I'm great at and she also knows what I suck at. And fortunately that's what she's great at. And we'll go to each other and look to each other as partners so that we're leveraging not just our own talents at the right time and right place, but we're leveraging one another as partners at the right time in the right place, which I think there's obviously a professional application for this too, especially for startup founders and business owners, solopreneurs, entrepreneurs. You should be getting to a point where you're doing less and less of the work that you hate and that you suck at. Find other people to do it. Outsource, just like we outsource to technology, outsource to more talented people in the areas where you're weak. I found no more benefit in my life than realizing that in my marriage relationship too. I mean, there that one of the most humbling things for me is working with an executive team that is so much better than me at so many things. And then having them compliment me on the things that I think are just obvious and easy. Right. They, they're so, you know, they'll rave for me about the things that I think are like, oh, that's not hard though. But the things you're doing are so hard. And I just am so grateful to have you on the team. And they'll be in the same way, uh, a bit uh, self-diminishing. They don't think that those are that you know, impressive. Um, and it's funny how we do that. We tend to sort of diminish our strengths in terms of their importance and, and, and compare them to other people's strengths and wonder, well, they're so good at that. Why am I so bad at that? But we don't properly put it in the context of, well, yeah, as a holistic, you know, person, I'm, I'm great in these areas that they may or may not be great in. And, and that strengths frame is really powerful, especially in your personal life and in your marriage. My wife, as you know, decided I had asked her for a couple of years, probably. I don't know. It'd been a That's while right. that I'd been saying, hey, you should at some point do this because we use this language at our company and I'd love to know kind of what your strengths are and we could talk and it would help us understand each other even better. And finally, after a few years, she decided to surprise me for Christmas and she did the assessment. She met with you. She got some advice yeah. and she came in. So she presented it to me. Yeah. 
And it was really fun to look at. And sure enough, it was very, very much the same. My very last attribute strength is the empathy strength and hers is yep. the very first one. Yep. Um, and there's a lot of examples of things like that, where when I then look at any disagreements or things we see differently, and I understand the frame through which she evaluates and makes decisions and the way that I evaluate and make decisions and that I'm going to prioritize things that fall in my strengths and she's going to prioritize things that fall and fall on her strengths. And so it makes it so much easier to appreciate all the good that we have in each other's strengths. And the less time I spend stressed out about my marriage or stressed out about my family or fighting with a spouse is more time I can go win at business. And this is, you know, there's been so many studies that have shown that marriage ends up being for most a very uh, highly correlated attribute to successful people. And I don't think that's a coincidence. I, I think yeah. this is the exact type of thing that marriage in and of itself is a huge form of leverage, allows for specialization, allows for uh, you to, to accomplish more as a unit than you would individually. Um, Absolutely. And that is just such an amazing form of leverage. And using the strengths lens can help you get more out of that uh, form of leverage. Yeah, it's just a language that we use to explain things that we've always known about ourselves. And like you said, didn't really think it was anything special. And then we start to realize, oh, other people don't have this too. It's such a, that language is such a powerful tool. Like, like you said, to take something, it, ordinary inputs into extraordinary results. That's just two normal people who learn to work together, be vulnerable, trust each other, partner with each other with the right strengths. And then they achieve something extraordinary when they're working together. Such a good example. All right. So let's talk about challenges or setbacks. Has there ever been, have you ever had leverage amplify a failure, a mistake or a setback? And it sounds like maybe in recent history, one of those was by using leverage to outsource some of the work. It has been a setback that you're, you're confronting of just your revenue goes down or your personal income goes down and you have to work through that. Are there any other examples like that of setbacks or something that you've seen amplified by leverage? Yeah. I mean, it's fun. It's funny when you mentioned crypto earlier, I was like, well, that's, that's true. I've always, I, I feel like I've always lacked a really solid understanding of financial leverage of, of all of these that make really good sense and that I've been able to leverage in my personal and professional life. Financial leverage has always been a struggle for me. And so I took, I took a good chunk of uh, my 401k and invested it in an, an IRA and in crypto. And the, the month that I decided to invest in crypto, it was the next month. It was December 2021 that I put money into crypto. And it was January 2022 that everything like hit the fan. It was, I cannot think of worse timing to, I, if I had put that money into crypto two months later, even a month later, I would have been great. I just sit on it for a while until crypto comes back up. But that stuff, like that hurt so bad to see hard earned money go away basically like go to nothing in a matter of a month and i was like why did why did i do that what was i i try to think back on like what did i think was going to happen what were my tells that made me feel like this was a good investment and in a lot of ways we mentioned we kind of touched on this but i feel like with all leverage but especially with financial leverage it's very much about timing you, you could have a very good vehicle normally for leveraging finances for an extraordinary outcome. But if your timing isn't right or wise, 
it, you're in trouble. And that, I think that's why we always talk about like, don't invest money that you don't have or that you can't lose. And fortunately, I mean, technically that was money I could afford to lose, but it, it sure did sting. That was a big setback for me where speaking of partnerships, I don't trust myself to make financial uh, decisions alone or in a vacuum. I, I rely on mentors. I rely on my wife. I rely on other people because of mistakes like this, where I just had to admit to myself, I am not as financially savvy as people that I see in the world where I think, oh, I'm going to follow suit. But by the time I'm following suit, things have changed. <laughs> so that was kind of a humbling experience for me where I think the idea was right to implement some financial leverage, but my yeah. timing was just the worst. The thing to remember there is just like with the strengths thing we were talking about a minute ago, that nobody actually is as, is as financially sa savvy as they appear or that you they think. want you to think that they are. Everyone loads and share every time they had some lucky win or something yeah, went up huge because it's such an anomalous event. But no one comes back to update you when those same people all of a sudden went to zero. And like so I never true. even I never even exited on that position, so I'm I'm down massive now. Yeah, and so very few people share that part. They're often embarrassed, especially if they've already bragged about how great it Gloated. was going. Yeah, and so you get this false information economy that is naturally going to promote like hype, and it's going to get rid of all reality, and. So the other thing to keep in mind is usually people have a financial incentive. So if I invest in this stock, if I can convince you to buy in, stock goes up, my money True. goes even higher. So the more I can get people to buy into the things I'm doing, then the more money I make, if, especially if I was early to that position. Mm -hmm. So that's something I'm very wary of, even with like larger influencers and people like that that are out there advocating for certain things, not technically like it's not financial advice. I'm just saying yeah. I bought a bunch or you're telling me you bought a bunch because now Gary Vee yeah. is typical for this. And I love Gary Vee, but he, he, he came out back in the day a few, a few years ago and was like, Hey, I'm big into cards. Now, maybe the card market does exactly the same, whether or not Gary Vee is big into it, but he was very clear on what he was buying and why yeah, I remember. And those markets, he had massive reach they pumped. and that got a lot of kids that follow him interested in going and being involved in that market, which leads the market to grow. Yeah. And now his, his investments are more valuable. Now, I yeah. don't think there's anything nefarious in what he's doing, to be clear. I'm not saying he's out there trying to con anyone or anything like that. No, he genuinely loves it. Like he's, that is a hobby of his that he loves. But the fact that he has the reach he has means he will move the market. Or yeah. Bill Simmons on podcasting, right? When he talks about bets, the markets yeah. move. When his podcast comes out, the betting odds shift. So he often doesn't do the same bets he puts out uh, in his podcast and yeah. or he does them before the podcast ever goes That's live. Right. He'll tell you about positions he's already taken because when he puts the podcast out there, that now he has enough reach and influence that it's going to move the betting lines. So. Yeah. Those are the types of things that, that you, that people, you have to take it with a grain of salt, a huge grain of salt. And so <laughs> my point in telling you that is just to say that if I was going to give any advice on that subject, it would just be when you take that into account, that most everyone is not as financially savvy as they seem claim to be, et cetera, including the professionals that work in that industry. All right. AI. I want to touch on AI. We've got limited time here to, to get through the rest of, of what we mm. want to touch on. You just got so many good responses. So we think about AI. Is there anything that you're watching in AI that you're super excited about, you think might disrupt your existing business models, or that you're planning to use as a form of leverage in your business? Oh, man. Yes. I've, I feel like I'm constantly looking for 
AI tools that I can leverage in my business. So I'm using them for marketing now, logo design, so you know, social campaigns, content marketing, things like chat GPT, just a lot of time. Like I actually just started writing an outline for a book that I want to publish that I'm really excited about. And I take everything to chat GPT and run it through chat GPT just to get me started. This is what I'm thinking. What's my outline? Hey, this is the chapter I have in mind. Give me a starting point for this chapter. It's so helpful. There are so many ways that it can supplement my business. On the flip side, obviously, I think there are some things that I need to be aware of that I can be replaced by AI. In some ways, my coaching practice, I've seen tools come out about therapists, AI therapists, AI coaches already. And, you know, we're like, what, nine months into chat since ChatGPT's launch. And um, it's, it's both scary and cool <laughs> how much potential there is for where this is going to go. And so I have to be realistic with myself about how to either differentiate myself enough from AI to be worth spending money on still, or accept that my time is limited before AI takes over the coaching side of my business and be prepared with other products to make up for it when I decide that it's time to let that go because AI can do it as well or better than me. The other half of my business though is like facilitation. And that's not even considering Culture Lab. Culture Lab absolutely could be replaced by AI at some point. And it maybe, maybe it already is on the way, which is really bad timing for me to be releasing something like this. But I feel like I've, I've got a window on Culture Lab for it to add value before AI takes that over. But the one thing that I think I'm not as at risk for as much is the facilitation side of my work would be really hard to replicate by AI because it requires not just in-person, like an expert facilitator who manages an in-person event and knows how to skillfully extract knowledge from participants in real time and manage dysfunction by reading body language and the tone of voice in certain comments like, oh, you just said this thing, but was that in response to something we had before? I think that the facilitation side of my business will be safe for a good long time, but I kind of am still, I'm constantly aware that I need to be prepared to become obsolete in any of the products or services that I offer if I'm not staying on top of either differentiating myself against AI or leveraging AI to make my product more valuable in the mind of my customers. I love the way you're thinking about that. I think it's dead on. Uh, as you know, we at Solved help companies with both Salesforce.com as well as generative AI solutions. And I think that one of the things that is most interesting right now is where can I license or resell or be a part where I can bring AI, AI into my solutions, yeah. just like you just described. If there's a replacement for Culture Lab, how can I take my proprietary elements, blend it in and use that? Because AI is going to be an accelerant, a massive accelerant to a lot of yeah. things, but there will be people on the right side of it, people that get buried by it. And, yeah. and that is a big distinction. I think there's, there's undoubtedly ways that you can license, resell, incorporate the AI into your existing tools, into Culture Lab. Even things like, for example, something you might consider, we use Fireflies.ai, uh, oh, which yeah. is a, a, a tool that records all of our uh, meetings, transcribes them 
Surfaces Insights gives summaries. I like to think about the way these tools are all going to work together. And I'm, I'm very confident, just like you said, the facilitation side, that's just going to get amplified as more and more important because mm -hmm. it's something that's very hard to replace by AI. Yeah. But within the tools and within the things that AI may replace partially or, or overlap with, I'm sure there's opportunities for you to either develop proprietary data sets that allow you to train your own model so that you hmm. can, you know, capitalize in that way. Like yeah. if you can get all the data from Culture Lab and then use that to, to start to inform a, an LLM, that uh, a large language model that gives certain types of responses in the process, that's going to be different than what just general AI would do. And and so thinking about how can you license that, how can you capitalize that, uh, gets me excited. Uh, yeah. So we should talk more about that another time. Before we go, just wanted to give you a chance to share, plug any resources, links, anything you want to advertise, uh, where can people find you, and any any final message you want to leave the audience with. Yeah, I would just say that um, I'm active on LinkedIn every day. I think that's the best place for people to find me. I love it when uh, people engage with my posts or send me messages. Uh, that's my, my platform of choice. But I also have a newsletter that I send out once a month that primarily focuses on leadership. I'd love for people to sign up to read that and be included on that if I can include a link in your show notes. And just yeah. generally, I mean, I love the idea of, of leverage the way that we've been talking about these different ways that we can use leverage. And um, as a Clifton Strengths nerd, I'll just repeat something that we talked about before that it's, it's easy, I think, as adults and intelligent, competent people to feel like we should always know the answer or we should be good at everything. And it can be one of the most liberating things to just accept that you don't have to be all things to all people. And leverage your talents when it makes sense and do the, the work that you love and that's easy for you, but also leverage other people's talents too and let them be a resource to you. F build yourself a team of supporters around you that are great in the areas where you're weak. It creates a, a life and business if you're a business owner or entrepreneur that is so much more rewarding than putting all that pressure on yourself to be all things to all people. So that would be, that would be my final message. I, I love teaching that kind of thing in my workshops that I do. And it's something that I truly believe and have experienced for myself. That's awesome. Check Micah out. It's tailored consulting. Culture lab is the tool and find him on LinkedIn and follow him so that you can learn from his incredible insights. We'll put all the links in the show notes. Thank you so much for being here, Micah, and can't wait to talk to you again soon. Man. My pleasure. Thank you. Hey, before you go, I have a small request. Our mission is to empower as many people as possible to maximize their potential through the power of leverage. Could you help us in this mission by leaving a review on iTunes, Spotify, or YouTube? And if you know just one person who would benefit from today's episode, would you please share it with them? Your support means the world to us, and we are thrilled to have you in the community. Thank you for being a part of our journey and helping us grow. You can find show notes for today's show and past shows at LessonsInLeverage.com, which also has links to connect with me personally and connect with our various podcast channels across your favorite social networks. A big thanks to Solve.Cloud who sponsored this episode. They're a group of expert consultants that help SaaS and financial services companies to implement, optimize, and manage Salesforce.com. They can help you with custom integration solutions and are helping customers to implement some of the most important generative AI technologies. You can find them at Solve.Cloud. Solved.cloud. That's S-O-L-V-D dot cloud is the URL. Thanks again, and we'll talk soon.